0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, moderator of the forum and minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Six to eight times a year, and this is the seventh year that we've been doing it, we raise questions regarding an important and often controversial aspect of our life as a society. We get at it with the aid of a special guest who has the credentials of first-hand involvement, perspective, and commitment. We invite that person to speak in the presence of all who choose to enter this large semicircular sanctuary located on the Nicollet Mall at noon along with those who tune in public radio. Well, we are here today to talk about the readiness of the United States to become involved secretly, politically, and yes, militarily in the affairs of other countries. And the overarching question becomes, is the CIA above the law? William Colby, our speaker, certainly meets the standard of involvement and perspective. As for involvement, he was the director of the Central Intelligence Agency from 1973 to 76 capping a life of intelligence work dating back to parachuting behind German lines during World War II to work with both French and Norwegian resistance groups. As for perspective, since stepping down from the CIA post in 76, he has been writing and speaking up and down the land, affirming, defending, refining, raising questions, responding to questions regarding the role of the CIA while also working as a Washington attorney specializing in international legal matters. As to commitment, Mr. Colby, we understand, is convinced that the CIA must be accountable under the American Constitution, and we look forward to his saying more. Indeed, we hope much more about that. In 1975, Mr. Colby is quoted as having said, I think it mistaken to, to deprive our nation of the possibility of some moderate covert action—response, that is—to a foreign problem and leave us with nothing between a diplomatic protest and sending in the Marines. Well, Mr. Colby, please tell us about that vast in-between from the perspective of your experience. And your declared conviction that the CIA must indeed uphold the law—we welcome you. you. Oh, the
1: other way. Oh, okay. Sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Meisel. I certainly appreciate being in this magnificent surrounding here. You really are seeing a a little conspiracy at work because I was told uh, this morning that the reason I was really invited here was because Dr. Meisel is an immigrant from a a neighboring city called St. Paul and I was born there. So uh, we are gradually trying to take the place over (laughs) in this fashion. I think uh, part of the reason also is that uh, the committee that establishes this thought that you'd been going through some rather heavy uh, treatment on various subjects and they wanted to give you a little uh, relaxation. So they asked me to come as a real live spy. (laughs) And already I think some of the ladies are a little disappointed. He doesn't look like a spy, gray hair, glasses, ordinary clothes might be something that came out of St. Paul, you know, <laughs> a normal kind of a person. Uh, and uh, on the other hand, uh, this is sort of the tradition of intelligence that it's supposed to be exotic and exciting. Uh, I am privileged to have the Bible in front of me and I could turn to that portion of uh, Joshua which describes how he sent two men into Jericho to spy out the land. And they furthermore added a little bit more to the reputation of intelligence by spending the night at the home of Rahab the harlot. And based on their careful investigation of the situation from that vantage point, and the Bible does not go into much detail on that, they decided that the people in Jericho were faint-hearted so that uh, Joshua could take the city by merely marching around it, blowing the trumpets, giving a great shout, and sure enough, the walls fell down. Uh, This, I think, is the tradition of intelligence, and it went on for many years. Uh, When our government set up our CIA in the late 1940s, a presidential commission gave it some of its earliest marching orders, and a quotation out of that is really instructive. It said, we needed an intelligence service more ruthless than its adversaries. Now, if you'd submitted that, which was a very secret document to a vote of the American people in 1948, I think it would have been approved because that was what intelligence was thought to be. Something outside the law, something that did its own work in its own way. The Congress just left the money at the corner and let the intelligence services go ahead and do what was, quote, necessary, unquote. There were respected congressmen who said they didn't want to know the secrets of CIA's activity. Sounds very strange today, but uh, those are direct quotations from the floor of the Senate. And I think uh, in this way, we then have to say, well, how come then we have an intelligence service today which is going through all the excitement that we have? I think there's a, a very good explanation for that. That the United States has conducted several revolutions in traditional intelligence work. The old idea that the spy stole the secret, gave it to the general, and he won the battle is really a thing very much of the past. It began to disappear right after Pearl Harbor when we looked around to see why we had been so surprised by that sudden attack. And we discovered that we had lots of information that should have warned us better. But some was in the Navy, some was in the Army, some was in the State Department, and it hadn't been brought together. So we set up at that time a central place called the Office of Strategic Services to bring all that information together in one place so that it could be looked at. Now, that agency also had the spies and the guerrilla operators and that sort of thing. But the most innovative thing it did was to bring a group of leaders of our academic profession from the universities down to Washington to sit and be that center. The central intelligence organization came out of that background. And Mr. Gates, who is the new nominee for the director of central intelligence, rather interestingly spent his entire career in the analytical side of CIA. He was at that center of looking at the information, trying to decide what it meant, what it signified for our country. Now in the course of the years also, we conducted another revolution in the way we collect intelligence because the spy was, is a very imperfect vehicle to get information even though you have to use them sometimes. And we were frustrated at the problem of getting information about the Soviet Union after Stalin took over and put his, imprim, uh, his imprint on that country. So we looked around for other ways to learn what was happening in the Soviet Union. And we turned to America's genius, and I mean it, in technology. And we took some of America's experts in aerodynamics and photo optics and chemistry, put them together to make an aircraft that would fly higher and further than anyone had to date, and flew over the center of the Soviet Union for several years, taking pictures of what happened and bringing those pictures home. Now eventually, the Soviets developed a missile that got up high enough to knock that down. But a very short time thereafter, we learned that that aircraft had not been engaged in an exercise in idle curiosity because a similar aircraft flew over Cuba in October 1962 and brought home some pictures of some funny shapes lying on the ground outside Havana. And when we looked at those shapes... We knew what they were. We didn't wonder what they might be because we'd seen them before. We knew they were offensive nuclear missiles in the course of being erected to put our nation under direct nuclear threat for the first time in history and to do it secretly. Now, central intelligence also helped because a a spy for the Americans, a Russian officer who gave his life to help us, told us something about that nuclear planning so that we could go to our president and say that he had about 10 days to two weeks before those missiles would be aimed at the United States and it would take them that long to put them together. Well, you know the story. President Kennedy negotiated with the Soviets. Eventually, Mr. Khrushchev blinked and removed the missiles. And we saved our country thanks to that new kind of intelligence that technological. Now, about that time also, we were venturing into the new ways of learning what's happening, going high up into space, going deep in the ocean, going listening to the rumble of the Earth's crust as we detect some far-off nuclear explosion. So that the, the collection of intelligence has utterly been re- uh, revolutionized. We don't send a spy out of Hong Kong to work his way up with great danger and difficulty through China to the Manchurian border to tell us what may be going on there. Because we look down on that border and we see the military units on both sides. We count the tanks, we count the aircraft, we count the pieces of artillery, we see them move from time to time. And we know with a precision and a scope of knowledge, things we wouldn't have dreamed of knowing a mere 25, 30 years ago. Now, this has been a veritable revolution. We still need the spies because there are some things that don't show up on the cameras or in the electronics. And sometimes those have to be gained by brave people who will work with brave Soviets to let us know what is happening inside those secret precincts. In that sense, yes, CIA is outside the law, outside Soviet law. Because there is a Soviet law against espionage, and Soviet officers have paid with their lives for violating it, but we are going to break that law if necessary to learn what we need to learn to protect our country. Now this brings up the question of law, however, and I think there there has been a third major revolution in American intelligence, because today it does work under American law. Now this was a a result of a fundamental contradiction that began to grow up over the years, that this new concept of intelligence was not a little secret spy service at the knee of the king or the prime minister. It was instead a larger institution. It's illustrated in a way by the story of the CIA building that was built a few miles outside of Washington. And when we built it, it was a fairly substantial building. And when they finished, uh, they put a sign on the parkway which said CIA. And everybody thought that was fairly normal, except a neighbor who drove by there on his way home and saw this sign. Well, the neighbor had a certain amount of influence in Washington. He happened to be the brother of the president, Robert Kennedy. He came in the next day and he said, you know, this is the silliest thing I've ever seen in my life. Here's a secret intelligence organization on a four-lane highway with a great big sign pointing to it. Now, what the heck is going on here?" So we took the sign down. And for 15 years, we pretended that that big building wasn't there, even though every pilot going up or down the Potomac used it as a checkpoint, turn right at CIA. And that was a contradiction in the fact of modern intelligence as against the old mythology of total secrecy. But there was also this other contradiction growing up between the constitutional role of intelligence. Because the Constitution doesn't have an exception for intelligence. It says we're gonna run our government through a separation of powers, and the judiciary has one role and the Congress has another and the executive has another. And sooner or later, that contradiction had to be resolved. And it was resolved with a great deal of uproar and a certain amount of sanctimony in the mid-70s. As we looked back on the 25 years in which we had not been more ruthless, I guarantee you, but we had found a few things that we clearly should not have done, no question about it. And we put those out in the open and we worked up a new system. We set up special committees in the Congress, one in the House, one in the Senate, who would be entitled to know the secrets of CIA and who would be expected to keep the secrets of CIA, but in the process would do the independent supervision that the, Congress, that the Constitution expects of Congress. Now, that's a little rocky road that we've had as to, with accusations about leaks. The executive says the Congress leaks. The Congress says it doesn't leak any more than the executive, which isn't much to say. And uh, this process has been going on now for a considerable time. But I think the point has been that it has put CIA under the law, no question about it. That it works now under a specific set of instructions as to what it will do and what it will not do. It's required to report to the committees as to what it is doing. And there, once in a while, there are little disputes about the degree to which it reported or didn't, but they're really kind of marginal against the overall fact that there is a reporting system and a congressional supervision. Now one of the problems this has led to, we are seeing in Washington today, which is that when Congress sets certain rules about the agency's procedures, such as a prohibition against any assistance to the Contra lead, uh, factions in Nicaragua, then the agency is limited and is not able to do that. And what happened in, the, in, the, uh, in this Iran-Contra affair is that the NSC, the National Security Council, realizing that the agency was stopped in its ability to help the Contras, went out to find some other ways to do it. Now, that's a contradiction in terms in itself. Because if you're going to run a delicate, clandestine operation, you'd better use the pros. I assure you that if CIA had been involved in funding the Contras and the Congress had allowed it, you would not have an attorney general standing at the microphone saying something between 10 and $30 million went to the Contras. Because we may have run it through all those secret bank accounts, but I assure you there are lots of systems we have to make sure that that money doesn't slip away. And we would know exactly how much it was. The other feature, uh, the other revolution I think about modern intelligence is its purpose. Because the old purpose was to gain an advantage over another side. More information on my side gave me an advantage over my enemy. Today, intelligence has a bigger purpose. It affords the basis for an understanding of the way we have to live in this world today. You can't make arms control agreements and trust the other side to abide by them. You've got to be assured that you will know whether they are abiding by them or not. And therefore, the function of intelligence today is frequently a very precise monitoring of what is happening in the lands with which we have made contracts or agreements. That uh, indeed, this is a follow-on of the normal intelligence function, because we're going to follow Soviet nuclear weaponry, whether we ever have an arms agreement between us or not, because we have to. We have to know what kinds of threats are aimed at our country, and we do a very good job. We don't, have, uh, we don't collect this information from any Moscow edition of Aviation Week, but we do collect it by our technology and our analysts. And those figures you see in the public print about the numbers of Soviet missiles and the numbers of warheads on each and the megatonnage and all those. Those are the result of our intelligence coverage. But it also has the the function that it can tell us whether the Soviets are sticking to limits we have made with respect to these. We're engaged in a debate about a radar station in eastern Siberia as to whether that's a violation of the ABM treaty. And it looks like it may be because it's in the wrong place. If it had been someplace else, it might have been all right. But we didn't suddenly see that appear in the form of a whole new weapon system aimed at our country, as Mr. Khrushchev tried to produce. We saw the early kinds of construction of a radar, which if combined with lots of other radars and lots of other ABM systems, might someday in the years ahead present a threat to us. So we've had the warning. We are able to negotiate with the Soviets as to what to do about that. And we are able to take our own actions, if we have to, in order to protect our country long before we are under threat. Now, this is the function of intelligence today, I think, to tell us what's going on, to increase our understanding. Now, am I saying that that's all there is to intelligence, that suddenly I forgot about the Bay of Pigs or any of the other activities, or the Contra, mining, or anything else? No, I'm not trying to dodge that. I'm trying to put it in perspective because covert action, covert operations have been a part of intelligence work around the world for centuries, no question about it. Benjamin Franklin was our first ambassador to the French court. And when he got over there, he decided that he wanted to get some help from the French government for those revolutionists over in America. And he negotiated this help. And in order to keep it secret from the King of Great Britain, this help was, fa- was handed to a small company that was set up as a false front company to transport the money and the arms to those rebe- rebels over in the American colonies. Now, that was one of our first experiences with covert operations. And it has a lot of similarity to the, some of the things that we do today that if we think some group of people are fighting for something that we believe would help us and help them, that we will have ways of giving them assistance. We don't send a young American in the Rambo fashion to do it all by himself. We look around for somebody who has a commitment and a conviction, which will be in his belief and in our interest, and we would perhaps help him in that fashion. Now, we can debate whether some of these are good ideas or not, and we do debate them. And in fact, if there is general agreement on the project, then it will be pretty well accepted, and it may even stay roughly secret. There is very little dispute today over the fact that a newspaper story once reported that the CIA is providing substantial covert assistance to the Mujahideen rebels in Afghanistan fighting the Soviet troops there. And that these are very substantial sums of money involved and nobody really objects. There is a lot of dispute as to whether CIA should be providing any help to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. And as a result, the Congress, two years ago, put in a restriction and said, stop. And I think you will find in these investigations of what the CIA did or did not do in the past few years, uh, past year or so, you will find that the CIA essentially stuck to the rule that it was not able to give any help to the countries. That didn't hold back Colonel North, but it certainly held back the CIA. You may find a fingerprint here and there slightly over the edge of what was proper. And particularly this one case of the, the officer down in Costa Rica who passed a message to a Contra leader, the message having come from Colonel North. Now, if that's all the CIA involvement in it was as a messenger boy, I don't think it's all that substantial. On the, on the aid to the Iranians, I think you will find that, yes, CIA was involved in that. But what it did, it did under direct presidential directive. And, and the fact that it did not tell the Congress about it when it was obliged under the law to inform the Congress in a timely fashion uh, came from the fact that the president gave it a specific direction not to inform the Congress, and that lasted some 10 months. I think we're gonna see some variation in whether timely means 10 months in the next few few weeks. But uh, the fact is that what it did on the Iranian thing, I think it did under its constitutional uh, commander. There's no question about that. And we'll leave to the lawyers the refining about whether the president had a right or did not have a right to tell them not to report to the Congress. That of course is the subject of a good discussion yesterday as Mr. Gates was being interrogated. So these kinds of operations, some are successful. I think the CIA assistance to the Menong in Laos for 10 years was an amazingly successful program in which the CIA provided quiet help to a lot of very brave Menong who wanted to keep their country free of North Vietnamese. And the CIA did it with a few hundred Americans and not much more, and some assistance. And we had very few losses, I think four to five losses in in a 10-year struggle in which the size of the enemy force increased from 7,000 to 70,000, and the Monang very bravely held them off. Now, at the end, we made a treaty which revived the treaty that we had made earlier that no country would interfere in Laos. The North Vietnamese proceeded to violate that treaty as they had the earlier one. And this time, the CIA was not asked to help. Now, on the other hand, there have been disasters. I mentioned the Bay of Pigs and others. So I think the question here is one of policy. Is the CIA above the law? No. the CIA conducts these operations, does it do it according to the law? Yes. And uh, then we will get to the edges of that question on any one particular one. Is one of these operations wise and in our interest? And there we as Americans will have different opinions. There's no question about it. But we have a constitutional system by which we can determine the answer to that question. It's a a system which requires that the executive and the Congress reach a consensus on whether we should undertake certain steps. In essence, It's not much different from our process of deciding whether we need a certain kind of battleship, a certain kind of nuclear weapon. The executive will have one view, the Congress will have another, and out of it, we will achieve some consensus at the end. On covert operations, we will have the same kind of activity in which the congressional role will be played, not by the Congress as a whole because you couldn't keep the secret, but by these congressional committees, which by and large I think have been a great step ahead and a great step forward. So the answer I think, no, the CIA is not above the law. It operates under our constitutional system. It provides the information and intelligence we need to protect our country. It provides a vehicle by which we can go ahead and negotiate some of these arms control agreements to bring additional security rather than less security to our country. And it provides a vehicle once in a while to give some aid to some brave people around the world who want to do something against people who announce themselves as the enemies of the great Satan America at the same time as trying to achieve a better life in their countries. Thank you very much.
0: So we're ready for questions, and I am—I've uh, got a couple to get you started on, just in case uh, the yellow cards haven't made it uh, to the fore yet. Uh, in 1985, Sir, you said all directors of the CIA finally are creatures of the presidents they serve. Would you care to comment on that? I find that an interesting sentence.
1: Well, I think that uh, the commission that hangs over your desk has a very simple set of words in it. It says, to serve at the pleasure of the president. Well, if the ple- president's pleasure changes, and for me it did, you're no longer serving, which I think is a perfectly reasonable approach. And therefore, uh, you essentially do follow the policy directions of the president. Or if you disagree, then you're, it's your obligation to leave the job. In 1975,
0: you said something to this effect, uh, that there are bad secrets, non-secrets, and good secrets. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs>
1: well, there are some bad secrets, some things that happened in the past that CIA did that it should not have done. I refer particularly to the, the uh, series of perfectly stupid operations to try to bring about the demise of Fidel Castro. Uh, you really wouldn 't believe the stupidity of some of those with the exploding cigar and the and the uh, the various other things uh, and working of all people with the mafia uh, with thinking that we had some joint interest in that regard so that 's a bad secret. A good secret is the name of some individual that we have abroad who is serving us and helping us and increasing our knowledge of the problems that we face and the forces arrayed against us. That's a good secret and we should keep his name totally secret. And the non-secrets are some of the things that traditionally used to be secret and really aren't anymore. Uh, That building that I told you about, that's a real non-secret, I'll clue you. And yet for years we thought it was a secret, though there are a few of those. There, there are less of them today because we frankly admit that we have an intelligence service and in what it did. And the old idea was that the, you could disown the spy uh, because the king had to keep his good relations with the other king, and therefore he could not admit that he was spying on the other king. I think we've gotten a little beyond that at this point, and uh, a number of other kings around the world know that we are spying on them, and they are busily spying on us. Question from the
0: floor. Is the CIA any different from the KGB or other secret
1: government organizations? Please comment. There's all a difference, quite frankly. Uh, I don't think the question of whether the KGB operates under the law has ever come up in the Soviet Union. Uh, I think you saw that on the streets of Moscow a couple of days ago with the uh, roughing up of the journalists and the refuseniks. Yes, there are vast, vast differences. The KGB combines in one organization what the United States divides into the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, the border police, the uh, the Republican and Democratic uh, 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 security sections of their parties, the state police of most of our states. That's what the KGB amounts to in the Soviet Union. It also runs a prison system. It has a few full-fledged divisions, armed regular divisions. Uh, on the borders and so forth. Now, that's a very different such system, and I assure you that it does not respond to special committees of the Supreme Soviet. Mm -hmm. What business,
0: this is from the floor, does the CIA have in overthrowing foreign governments? Please
1: explain. Well, what business does it have? This is a certainly a proper surrounding to be considering an ethical question. Is it proper to violate somebody else's law in order to learn something or in order to help some group in that other country? And it's a tough one to to ask, particularly in these wonderful surroundings. But you know, the doctors of the church over the centuries have worked out a, a set of philosophy known as the just war. Uh, that there's some wars are just. I don't think there's a soul in the audience that would say that our struggle against Hitler was unjust. It was a just war. Now, the main elements of that kind of an ethical approach are that the action must be fundamentally defensive, not aggressive. That your purpose in doing it must be somehow related to the protection of yourself and not just imposing your will on someone else or seeking his his funds or anything else. Now, that's one requirement. And if you look back on American wars and CIA operations, you'll find some that met that challenge and some that didn't. Just ask the Mexicans. They are pretty sure that uh, we stole half their country and uh, they every now and again are fearful that we're going to take the rest, so they're engaged in taking ours. Uh, the, The other element of the just war is proportionality. You are entitled to use the degree of force against an enemy necessary to protect yourself, but you are not entitled to use an excess of force. That's the doctrine of proportionality. If you are shot at from a village, you are entitled to respond to the fire you are not entitled to drop a nuclear weapon on the village and obliterate everything for miles around. That's the doctrine of proportionality. Now, I think here again, this, I think you can even make a positive case for some of CIA's activities, which is that in some cases that we have an interest in protecting ourselves or our allies against some incursion by some hostile force. And there is a choice as to how to do it. We can either ignore it, hope it will go away, and give up, which I don't think you're asked to do under the just war philosophy. Or you can send the B-52s and the tanks and the huge armies, which I think can frequently not only be the wrong way to do it ethically, but also the wrong way to do it practically. And I think I would stand that Vietnam is a good example of that. Or you can work out some middle way, some reasonable degree of exerting your influence on the situation by seeking out friends there and helping them. And I think in some of these operations you will find that that, that, that kind of an operation clearly fits the rule of proportionality. That it is reasonable to assist at some people in trying to achieve a change in the local government. After all, if the Bay of Pigs had worked, I think it would have been met by a roar of approval. And more important, the United States would not have been faced with that nuclear threat a year and a half later. Now, that's what I mean by the doctrine of proportionality, whether we would drop a bomb on Cuba or whether we would help some brave Cubans trying to liberate their country from a very hostile regime there, I think the doctrine of the just war clearly applies. It didn't work though.
0: Another question from the floor. A recently published book entitled, The Second Oldest Profession, criticizes the CIA has not been accountable to the U.S. government unless the congressional committees happen to ask the right questions. Any response?
1: Well, it's not that they happen to ask. They have staffs that go and ferret around to, to try to find what they can. They have a large and enthusiastic group of collaborators called the journalists who uh, reveal everything they possibly can. Uh, so it isn't quite such a uh, you know the three monkeys in a row. See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Uh, the there are times when you get a little argument as to the degree to which the agency was responsive on something. You get the same kind of argument about the Agriculture Department or anybody else in their relations with their congressional committees. But I think the best example was that argument that came up over the mining of the harbors in, in Nicaragua, a project I don't happen to agree with, but nonetheless, Senator Goldwater exploded in and, and some words which I won't repeat in, this, uh, in these surroundings. Uh, that he hadn't been informed. Uh, Somebody pointed out that there was the mention of the word mining in a briefing that had been given. Of course, it was one word in about 60 pages, and the good senator had not noticed it. But Senator Leahy the next day said he had noted that word, had asked for a description, and had gotten a full description. He said, I oppose the idea very vigorously. But I do not say that the agency concealed it in any way. And that same remark essentially was made by Chairman Boland of the House Committee. So I think you will have arguments from time to time about these things, but the the going relationship is one of reasonable uh, disclosure with the agency trying to keep some secrets from too much exposure and the Congress trying to learn a little bit more about all the details. Thank you.
0: This question from the floor, what advice can you offer for a graduating college student with a good foreign language background who's interested in a career in the CIA, where does one start? I juxtapose that in my own thinking with an article in this morning's paper from the University of Minnesota where the whole debate was whether uh, CIA
1: recruiters should be on a campus at all. Would you... Well, there's one way to start, and that's to look in the uh, the phone book uh, under U.S. government, and you'll find in... I'm not sure whether you'll find it in Minneapolis or not, but I know you'll find it in some other cities, the thing which says CIA and recruiting office. Uh, I don't think they'll give you an, an address because we had a few bombs placed on them at one point, but they'll give you a telephone number and uh, you can work out a, to, a way to go see them. Uh, I think this is a very much of a foolish approach, frankly, this protest against the CIA offering jobs to people in universities. Now, we're not talking about a clandestine infiltration into the university. We're merely offering jobs to graduates of the university. And I think that we would be depriving our nation of something quite important if the kind of talent that is at the University of Minnesota were somehow excluded from assisting its nation by helping its intelligence services. They're not required to. It's only if they want to and if they make the applications and get through our very st- stiff tests to see whether they can make it or not. But I think that uh, somebody who wants to get a job in intelligence should be assisted in that process so that we can be better served. I don't think any of us want a CIA made up only of, college, of uh, high school graduates. Not above the law, certainly, but the law is very vague about the authority and activities of the National Security Council for a very good reason. It's part of the president's personal staff, and it's very hard to make laws that apply very directly to that kind of an activity so close to the personality of a president. Uh, There's certain overall laws that certainly apply to it, like stealing government money or anything, of course, but uh, there's considerable doubt as to the degree to which the NSC either is or should be subject to full congressional supervision. Uh, I don't think any of us would want to have a law which says the the NSC can do nothing except sit in the White House outer rooms there and process paper for the president, Uh, because that would have meant that Henry Kissinger could not have gone to China and opened our relationships with China. Now, you can argue about the wisdom of any one of these things. But I think you have to leave some ambiguity, if you will, some room for judgment as to things that the president might want to do very directly under his direct control uh, and not go involve the entire bureaucracy in it. That should not involve sending arms to Iranians. That uh, I think was a very serious mistake which would not have occurred if it had been properly staffed through the government. Because I think a very simple bit of thinking about that would say the only purpose of these arms is to help the Iranians defeat the Iraqi. And if there's anything that I can think of that would be directly counter to American interests in the area, it would be an Iran victory over Iraq today. Thank you. ex
0: agent John
1: Stockwell
0: has come out with many examples of CIA assassination and destabilization of. uh, unfriendly governments. Would you be willing to comment on the veracity of his assas, uh, assertions? I, I must confess, I heard a tape by Stockwell uh, you know, right. s- spelling uh, out in detail the kinds of atrocities that uh, just make your skin crawl to think that our
1: country could in any wise be identified with that kind of activity. Right. Uh, Mr. Stockwell was an officer in the agency. He became dissatisfied with the agency, left the agency and has been, had wrote one book and maybe another, I'm not sure, uh, and has been speaking in these terms uh, ever since. I would go back to the findings of the Church Committee, which went into the CIA history in great detail uh, under oath and worked out, uh, I think, a comprehensive history of what the agency did and what it did that was wrong and what it did that was, was right. Uh, in that, it came up with the fact that the CIA certainly was involved in at least the preliminary steps toward assassinating a couple of foreign leaders. Uh, and certainly the Castro case is one in which it went beyond preliminary uh, effort. It went quite, quite extensively. But there were some preliminary steps taken with respect to uh, Mr. Lumumba in, uh, in the Congo and uh, with respect to a couple of other people. But the church committee, I think accurately, said that there are a certain number of other uh, people who have been uh, uh, political leaders who were killed by local people and maybe the CIA had a contact with them but was not involved in inspiring or directing that. Uh, In fact, the conclusion of the church committee after, as I say, a full examination of this subject. Said that the CIA had never actually conducted the assassination of a foreign political leader. Now, it wasn't for lack of trying in Castro's case, but uh, that happens to be the fact. Another question. Uh, As for people being killed in some of the CIA struggles, yes, there were people killed at the Bay of Pigs, there were people killed in Laos, there were people killed in various kinds of. paramilitary or military operations. But that's different from the subject of assassination.
0: A related question. How do you view works which identify CAI uh, operations and personnel, such as uh, Philip Agee's uh, Inside the Company?
1: Well, Philip Agee lives abroad these days for good reason. If he came here, I think we might try to prosecute him. Uh, he, again, was a, foreign, uh, was a former CIA officer who became disaffected for some personal reasons, quite frankly. I won't go into them. It doesn't matter. Uh, and then wrote a book about CIA, remembering as much as he possibly could. In his foreword to the book, he thanks the Communist Party of Cuba for its assistance to his research. I think you can get a rough idea of the uh, degree of objectivity we're talking about. Uh, And he has made a cottage industry ever since of that particular activity. The CIA officers who leave the agency are under the same obligation I am that if we want to write something about intelligence, we are required to send that material to the agency for clearance. I find that a highly reasonable kind of a rule. I have done quite a lot of writing. I've sent a lot to the agency. I've had a few things which they asked me to take out, and I did, uh, and it didn't, in my mind, hurt me at all. If it's uh, not about intelligence, I can say what any American citizen can, no problems. So uh, the fact is that I think uh, CIA officers who go into the agency undertake certain responsibilities in return for the very sensitive information that our country has, that they are going to be exposed to, and we ought to hold them to that. In
0: 75, you made this comment, I think we can tell American people a true statement and keep other matters which have to be secret, secret, but I do not believe we can tell them an untruth. Uh, the whole business of disinformation uh, surfaces
1: in one's mind and would appreciate right. your comment. Right. Well. Remember, I'm speaking to the American people here. I don't have any problem in propaganda abroad. I don't think any country does. It's a, it's a question of wisdom. I mean, obviously, you're not going to be listened to unless you develop a reputation for credibility. But I think there is a difference between the truth and the whole truth and an untruth. Uh, now people say, well, you're being sophistic." when you uh, say the difference between the truth and the whole truth. I don't think that's sophistic at all. I think we all live our lives that way. We don't feel obliged to tell everybody the truth of what we think about them every day of the week. Uh, And it would be a pretty messy society if we did. Uh, So, yet we are obliged not to tell them a flat lie. And I think that can apply to testimony. Uh, It applies incidentally. uh, I am a lawyer and that is incidentally the test of perjury. Uh, You'll never get anybody on perjury for not having told the whole truth. It's up to the the lawyer opposing him to frame the question so that he gets the information he wants. Uh, I'm reminded of one case where the journalist came up to me and I was trying manfully to keep secret a very important operation. And he said, I understand you're off after a certain target in the Atlantic. And I said, that's absolutely false. And I was right. We were after one in the Pacific. (laughs) Question from the
0: floor. How is the CIA involved in domestic affairs?
1: None. Uh, There were charges that we had gotten into the domestic arena from time to time over the last 25 or 30 years, and those created the major explosion. The journalist who who started that uh, story said that we were engaged in a massive domestic intelligence operation. Well, it turned out that we had stepped over the line here and there in various places that we really shouldn't have, but that we were not engaged in a massive domestic intelligence operation. Now the CIA's job is abroad. The FBI's job is in the United States. Uh, obviously you have to help each other, just as the Army and the Navy have to help each other. But you each have your own real focus of your responsibilities, and the CIA essentially is abroad. That building, however, is in Washington. So there's no question about it that we have, I'd we have a recruiting office someplace. Uh, to do normal recruiting, but not to run secret operations in the United States.
0: It has been rumored that once a CIA, always a CIA, this is rather personal. Is there any truth in this statement? And If so, do you ever have concern for your personal safety due to the position you held as CIA director?
1: Well. Uh, I thought uh, Secretary Schultz was very amusing when uh, somebody referred to him as a former Marine. and His response was, former, hell, there are no former Marines. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse the expression. Uh, and that's... Uh, uh, a little of that in that book too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the answer is, there is a high degree of loyalty among... Uh, those of us who spent our careers in intelligence, but of course, we've had our apostates and our uh, defectors like Mr. Agee and some others who have gone out and separated. There are, time, from time to time, uh, some of our former employees may be asked to return to help the agency out on some project. Uh, there was a gentleman who shared the plane with uh, Mr. McFarland going over to Tehran with the cake and the Bible, uh, a little bizarre touch, I must say. but. Uh, And he was there because he spoke Farsi very well. He'd had a lot of experience in the area. He'd retired a few years ago, but they reached out and wanted to have him help McFarland in that particular operation. Now, was that CIA? No, it was a former CIA. Was he working for the agency? No, I think he was working for the NSC in that stage. Uh, You can construct a wonderful conspiracy theory. That's easy. But, uh, no, I think it's not very different from any other career service, uh, former military personnel are proud of their service, uh, keep a certain amount of contacts with it, try to support their former service. And I think the same thing might be said of, uh, of control data or anyplace else. Another question from the floor, Mr. Kobe, do you have any regrets
0: about having directed Operation Phoenix in Vietnam?
1: No. And death many for people. those of you who don't know what it is... Um, Operation Phoenix, uh, I have defended a number of times, and I did direct it for a while. It was a program designed to increase our knowledge of the secret apparatus that the communists had within South Vietnam, to change the situation from just focusing on communist guerrillas or communists to a detailed knowledge of who the local tax collector was, who the chairman of the... Provincial Revolutionary Committee was, all that sort of thing, to develop the intelligence that would enable us to know who these people are. Now, after that intelligence was developed, we made it available to the various services that were fighting the communists, to the police services if they could arrest them, to the the amnesty program if they could invite them to take amnesty, and a lot of them did, to the military who could run an attack on a meeting of the provincial committee in some jungle fastness and hoped to capture as many as they could, and in the process, engaged in the firefights that led to a lot of their deaths. Uh, It was part of the war. It was no different than fighting the regular North Vietnamese forces in that situation. Uh, It's been highly sensationalized as a program of assassination. I'm the guy who wrote the first directive that very clearly said this will not be a program of assassination. It will be conducted under the normal laws of war. Uh, And I I wouldn't say, and this is where you get in trouble in our American political system, because then the congressman asks you, are you saying then that nobody was wrongfully killed in that program, and I say, of course I can't say that, because I knew of a couple that were wrongfully killed and I remonstrated with the local government about them and had people punished or moved for having engaged in that activity. But it's my belief and very firm experience that uh, at one time I gave the numbers that some 28,000 of these people had been captured. And we used to say, capture them if at all possible because they come in with information. Dead. Man does not give you any information. That some 17,000 of them took the amnesty program and about 20,000 were actually killed. Most of them in firefights, military actions outside the village at night. And you have a, a shooting match go on outside the village. You go out in the morning. You find some of your people killed. You find some of the enemy killed. Who is that enemy? He's Mr. Nguyen. Uh, Mr. Nguyen is on your record as the tax collector for the area. Was he assassinated? No. He was. Was Did he take amnesty? No. Was he captured? No. He was killed. And so, most of them occurred in that fashion.
0: As we draw toward a close, would you be willing to say something about your opinion of Mr. Gates, who is a candidate for the position you held, wisdom, judgment, character?
1: I think very highly of Mr. Gates. Uh, He is, uh, I think, the recognition of the final arrival of the analyst to the central position in intelligence. Uh, For years, the intelligence business was dominated by people with operational backgrounds, such as myself, Uh, and the, the analyst was not really in the forefront. That was a mistake made in the way we organized the an- analytical side of the agency. We set it up the way you set up universities, with a Department of Politics and a Department of Economics and a Department of Science and so forth. And that's not the way an intelligence organization really should be organized. Uh, I took a little stab at starting to reorganize it and figured we'd had enough turbulence. I uh, know we didn't need any more. But Mr. Casey, about four or five years ago, did reorganize it geographically so that you get now senior positions for senior analysts. And Mr. Gate came up that particular train. And I think it's a very good thing. In character, he's fine, he's he's obviously highly intelligent, and I think that he also understands after the last two days, as who doesn't, uh, the necessity of working with Congress.
0: I wish there were time to to talk with you about an article of yours that appeared in the morning paper. Star Wars may kill any chance of strategic defense. Perhaps we can get you back for that agenda. Uh, you, sir, have uh, been very open uh, and responded to all the tough questions. We've not uh, kept any of them back. We have others because there <laughs> isn't time to present them all in one uh, one moment. Well, but, thank you very
1: much. It's been a great privilege <laughs> to be with you. Thank you. Thank you.